I'll be reading this morning Colossians 3, beginning in verse 19. Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. I'll pray. God, I again just thank you for your word and for the practical admonitions, God, that you have for us. That you always lead us into the truth and you always supply us, God, for all the grace that is necessary for what you require of us. Thank you, God, that you don't just give us instruction, but you live in us, Lord, to, to fulfill by your power all that you do require of us. So again, ask God that just you would work in our hearts to minister to us as we need. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as I noted last week as we got into this passage here on relationships, um, our faith as Christians is, is not um, primarily um, vertical. It's not just about loving the Lord. And it is not um, exclusively horizontal. We don't just have a religion where we're supposed to do and not do certain things. But our devotion to the Lord and all that He is manifests itself in how we live out in our relationships with each other. And so it's not just a theology, but it is a theology that impacts our morality, our ethics. And so... What we've studied here, what Paul has revealed about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is preeminent. And as the preeminent God that he is, who dwells in every believer, he is supremely sufficient for living this life. I can't live this Christian life. You can't live it. No one ever could. But God, who made us and who gave himself for us and rose again from the dead and now indwells us, God is able to live this life. And as we, we live in relationship with him, it does impact every relationship that we have. It impacts our relationship in our marriages, with our children and children to parents, with our church body, and also in how we work in a secular world, how we conduct ourselves. And so it's all very, very practical and almost too practical. Sometimes you wish that these verses weren't even here. Last week, we spent most of the time talking about verse 18, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And then I got into the first half of verse 19, husbands love your wives. But I didn't get into the second half, do not be embittered against them. Because that's not an issue for anybody. (laughs) So we'll just skip that. It is an issue. Um, and it is a, it's something that um, is all too common in marriages. 
I did a, taught a Bible study a number of years ago, just a one morning event where I was asked to come in as a guest speaker for the Bible study. And it was all men, and they were all in their 70s and 80s. I was by far the youngest man in the room. And I, I just asked them a question in the context of what I was talking about. I said, you know, it says here, husbands, do not be embittered against your wives. It doesn't say wives, don't be embittered against your husbands. And so I, I don't know that, that it means that wives never have any issue with being embittered. I think they do. But there must be a reason why the scripture puts the emphasis here on the husbands. Husbands, don't be embittered against your wives. And I said, said you guys have been married longer than I have, lived longer than I have. Would you say that this is more of a problem for men than it is for women? And every man in the room, they just laughed and they go, absolutely. We husbands have a harder time with this not being embittered than our wives do. And so makes you think. Husbands, don't be embittered towards your wives. So I've made a long list of all the different things um, that could potentially embitter a husband. And um, I had to search and do a lot of reading and commentaries because this has never been an issue for me. <laughs> I don't even need to get into all of it. Um, there's a, so many things. I mean, when you, and, and you don't even want to go down that path, really. And as I just sat and had to just say, Lord, examine my heart, you know, why, what causes me to be embittered against my wife? And, and I could make a list. Um, it's pointless, really. Because what it all comes down to is pride. My pride, not hers. <laughs> and I know that if I were sitting and doing premarital counseling with a young couple... Um, I would go over this topic, and I would say, these are different ways, guys, that you are going to be tempted to become embittered. And I might say to this young woman, you need to be aware, because this is how you can embitter your husband. But again, um, yes, we want to walk carefully, and you don't want to be stupid and, and careless and inconsiderate, but you can spend your lifetime learning what it means not to be inconsiderate and not to do things that are going to embitter someone else. It doesn't take away the personal responsibility we have. Because see, that's the problem with making a list of how my wife or a wife might cause her husband to be embittered. It immediately puts the responsibility on the wife. But it's not her responsibility here. Paul's addressing the husband and saying, do not be embittered. So he's not putting the responsibility on the wife. Whatever is going on in that marriage, the husband is responsible for his own response. And he is responsible not to be embittered. Proverbs has a number of verses about um, a contentious wife. I do not have a contentious wife. And I read those verses and I say, I thank the Lord God did not allow me to have a contentious wife. But even if I'd had a contentious wife, and she is not described very favorably at all in Colossians, better to live in a corner of a roof than with a contentious woman. Like a day of constant dripping is living with a contentious woman. Doesn't matter. Because Jesus is who he is, 
I can live a life free of being embittered, no matter what my circumstances are. And I think about Christ and his relationship with his bride. And his bride sins against him. Amen? (laughs) We are the bride of Christ. And we sin against our groom, Jesus. And I am glad to know Jesus is never embittered with me. Now, he may not be happy (laughs) with what I do. And that's another story. And I can break fellowship with him. That is all true. But I can rest assured that the perfect groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what I do, never develops a bitterness in his soul toward me. That's amazing. And the perfect groom lives in me to be the perfect groom, to be the perfect husband. Which means I have no excuse for being embittered toward my wife. When we get married, we're all caught up in how wonderful um, what, God is, what God has just done is. That we, what a wonderful woman God's given me, what a wonderful man God's given. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And I, as you know, I, I, I say to, the, to, the, to those young couples on that day, this is God's gift to you. You will do well if you never forget this is God's gift. And she is. Well, then why do you become embittered? Well, because you're forgetting she's God's gift. And you think you have a right to be mad, a right to be angry. It comes down to pride. I say to myself, I'm not that bad. (laughs) I say to myself, I don't deserve this. And you can hear the pride in it. I'm not that bad. You could have married someone worse. (laughs) I don't deserve this. And it's just dripping with pride. Sometimes it's a little more subtle, and the psychologist would say the reason we get frustrated and embittered is because we have a goal blocked. And what is our goal? Make my life happy. (laughs) And again, there's pride. I deserve a happy life. My life would be happy if you weren't making it miserable. Pride. The answer to pride is Jesus. He is sufficient. I have to humble myself and recognize I am not preeminent. Christ is preeminent. I am not sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. I have to recognize, as Paul has in in this little letter to the Colossians, that I have died with Christ. And I have been raised up with him. And as he says in Galatians, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. He says here in this letter in chapter 3, he is our life. And our life is hidden in him. Our life is not in being treated the way we think that we deserve. Christ is our life. We are told to keep seeking the things above, not seeking our rights, not seeking to be treated the way that we want to be treated, 
but to be seeking the things above. So really, the thing to take away from this exhortation, admonition, husbands, do not be embittered against your wife, is that he is putting responsibility for your bitterness on you, husband. Don't blame your wife when you're embittered. Take responsibility for your emotions and for your heart and bring it before Jesus. That's enough of that. Okay, let's move on to children. (laughs) And all of us, as children are raised, we can point our fingers at the rest of you, right? No. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And again, Paul's addressing this particular class of person, children. He's not addressing the parent here, but we understand here that, that one of the goals of parenting is to teach our children to obey. But he put it, puts again this on the child. Ch- children, be obedient. Be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So he doesn't just put obedience on the children, but he's, he's speaking directly to the children and saying, this is pleasing to God. We don't do enough of that as parents. I, I remember being um, pleasantly surprised at how early you can orient your children to Jesus. You can't start too soon. From the, from the very beginning, when it's just praying for them, and they don't even understand what you're saying, but, but they see your head bowed over them in prayer. You cannot start too soon with orienting your children to Jesus. It's not just about obeying you. It's not just about having children that are well-behaved so you are not um, made uncomfortable in public. That's the least of your concerns. It is children learning to relate to the Lord. And so that is a constant reminder. We have to be reminded constantly. Our children need to be reminded constantly. This isn't ultimately about you and them. It is about them and God. Orient them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach them to be obedient, yes. But you need to say to the children, this isn't ultimately about me teaching you to obey. This is about you learning to obey as unto the Lord. And the only way for you to be the child, the obedient child that God wants you to be, is for you to live from Christ even as I am seeking to live from Christ. And that's what they need to see, is that you are coming to Jesus and you are encouraging them to do the same thing that you're doing. Many times, Patsy and I had to apologize to our children, humble ourselves before our children, ask for forgiveness of our children, because we had to ourselves come to Jesus. And when we messed up, we had to acknowledge that to our kids and say, would you forgive me? Humbling thing to ask a four-year-old to forgive you. But we have to do that as part of modeling that relationship with the Lord and in orienting them to Christ. Why are you asking them for, for forgiveness? Because you sinned against them. And they are, and they are worth the respect that comes from asking for forgiveness. You want respect from them? Well, give them respect. 
And that's just a matter of respect. You want their love, you want their obedience, and these are things that, you, that they have to see modeled as you relate to them. But children, be obedient to your parents in all things. All things. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because Jesus was well-pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because in all things he did the Father's will. And so again, Christ is the obedient one. Christ is, as it were, the child to the child. He lived as a child, as the Son of God, always, always being obedient to his Father. And so there's no area of life, no stage of life, where Christ is not sufficient for that stage of life. And so the one who was constantly obedient, and it was his joy to do what the Father said, lives in your children if they have placed their faith in Christ. And if they haven't, then you orient them to that. And you say, there's no way for you to do what God has created you for, apart from faith in Jesus. You need Jesus for this. This isn't just about obeying dad. This is about your relationship with God. Now, Paul speaks to this in Ephesians, and he goes into more detail, and he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. So this is a big stuff here. Honor, obey, it is the first commandment with a promise that you may live well with and that you that you may that you may go well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So we are not doing a disservice to our children when we encourage them to come to Jesus for the grace to obey God, to become obedient children. It's a promise, a command with a promise. You will do well. You will live long on the earth. We happen to have with us a lady this, this morning whose dad, um, I've told you the story, used to encourage me to teach our children to obey. And he had done a fantastic job, in my estimation, raising his five kids. And so he was done raising them, and I knew them, and they were wonderful, outstanding people. And he asked me when our kids were little, Charlie, what's your number one responsibility for those kids? And I said, teach them to love the Lord. No! (laughs) Well, then what else? Become Christians. No! Read their Bibles. No! Well, what? I mean, I'm a loser parent. And he goes, your number one responsibility is to teach them to obey. He said, if they do not learn to obey, he says, this is what every parent on the face of the globe is charged with. Christian or not, they are charged with teaching their children to obey. Every parent on the face of the globe. Because if they come into this world, barbarians, he said. And your job is to civilize them. Amen. But then he added this. And he said, A child that doesn't learn to obey cannot love God. Because the scripture says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So when a parent raises his child to do just hands off, he can just do whatever he wants. 
And he hasn't from the heart learned to obey. Not just external service, but from the heart learned to obey. You've done the greatest damage you could ever do to a child. You may tell him about Jesus and pray that he becomes a Christian and maybe even see him place his faith in Christ. But if that child does not know how to bend his will to you, how is he going to bend his will to God? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Very, very important. But fathers, verse 21, you can exasperate your children. In Ephesians, Paul says, do not provoke your children to anger. So I think that exasperate that Paul's talking about here has that idea in mind of provoking your children to anger. Now, I always told my daughter, Audrey, that the verse in the Bible says, children, do not exasperate your parents. And she says, no, daddy, I know it says, daddies, do not exasperate your daughters. (laughs) So we would have fun with that throughout the years. And I always tried to do things to provoke her and exasperate her. Took her out to dinner one night with Patsy and told the lady that was taking our order that we were celebrating. And she said, really, what are you celebrating? And I said, we're celebrating my daughter getting out of prison. And uh, (laughs) Audrey's standing there. (laughs) It's great. I love doing that kind of thing. And we were in Walmart buying a hunting license for her one year. And And they were asking her all the questions that they do every year when you buy a hunting license. Have you shot any geese? Did you shoot any ducks? Did you shoot any doves? And there's about a dozen people standing around waiting to buy their licenses. And when she finished, she said no to all these questions. And I said, well, sweetheart, you forgot about the whooping crane that you shot. (laughs) If you don't know, that's an endangered species, and it's a huge deal to shoot one. And it just went silent. And she's just shaking her head because, yeah, I did this a lot. I took her out to, she, one morning, it was Halloween day, and, 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 and she didn't have her makeup on, and, and um, we happened to be in the, in the um, post office, and the postmaster said, what are you guys doing out so early? And I said, we're just running around scaring people because Audrey didn't have her makeup on. He laughed. I thought he was going to fall on the floor. He laughed so hard. <laughs> It's been fun exasperating my daughter over the years. And she's not here, so I don't have to pay her for commenting on this. But in all seriousness, it is very serious. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. And it's great that God inspired Paul to put this as he did because the previous verse where I just said, teach your children to obey. A lot of dads love that verse. That's going to become my goal. And we're going, to, we're going to get this down. In the very next verse, fathers do not exasperate your children. I appreciate the psalmist in Psalm 113, 103, 13 and 14, where he writes and says, God is compassionate toward us. As a father is compassionate toward his children, our God is compassionate toward us. He is mindful that we are but dust. He is mindful that we are but dust. I think we forget sometimes as dads what it was like to be a child. And to be a Christian child is especially difficult. Sometimes we should think back to what it was like to grow up 
in the days when we all went to public school. None of us were homeschooled as adults. And what it was like to be one of the few Christians. And you're struggling. You're going through puberty and all those body changes and all the insecurities that come with that. And you don't really know what your identity is. And you've been told it's Jesus and you want it to be Jesus, but you're so much struggling with what your identity really is. Where does it come from? You see the cruelty. Sometimes you're a subject of it. Sometimes you're the doer of it. Man, I look back on those days, junior high especially, and I go, how did I survive? And if you've got a dad or a mom, and apparently in Hebrews here it's translated parents, and so it's not always just translated dads. So this applies to moms too. But if you've got a parent in the midst of that time who just has no compassion and no understanding, you've been at school all day and you've just been beaten down and you're struggling to do the right thing and your parents can't begin to understand what you're going through and you come home and there's no understanding, no compassion, no effort to hear and to understand, it can be very disheartening, very exasperating. I thank the Lord that, that my parents did all they could do to understand in my life in those years. And I can remember my mom sitting, kneeling beside my bed, praying for me in those junior high years. And they didn't begin to understand what I was going through. But I appreciated that they were making the effort and that they were praying for me and wanted me to do well. How do we exasperate our children? It might just be, to co- be a conversation to have with your kids. I know sometimes you're struggling with anger. Am I doing something to cause that? Can I help? Instead of just hammering them because they're angry. What's going on here? What's causing this? We can exasperate when our children don't feel like they can ever please us. They don't know what is expected or they can't do what is expected. We're either unclear or we're being unreasonable. When nothing is ever good enough, we can never be satisfied. When the expectations always change, we're inconsistent. We can exasperate our children when they see deep hypocrisy and what we're asking of them and how we're living our own lives. We ask of them, even demand of them, honor and respect. In too many homes, there's very little honor and respect between husband and wife. And yet we want it unconditionally from our children. They need to see it between mom and dad. We can be too strict. No understanding, no kindness, just all discipline and no fun. I wanted my children to know that the first time I asked them to do something, they were supposed to do it. Not the second, not the third. The first time. I've had that conversation with our little grandson this week while he's been with us. It just keeps going. <laughs> now it's the next generation. So we're trying to reason with a four-and-a-half-year-old, explain to him why it's important to do something the first time. But I don't want to be just a grumpy old grandfather 
in his life. I need to have fun with him. And so when we put him to bed at night, I'm in there squishing him like a pancake and asking him if he likes pancakes and tickling him and saying, he says, I don't like being tickled. And I say, well, then why do you have so many tickle buttons on you? And I keep pushing the different spots that I know are going to tickle. He needs to know that I love him and I like him and I want to have fun with him. It's not just all about discipline and obedience. We can be too lenient. You know, I, I, it's, it's a pet peeve of mine, and so probably out of balance. But from time to time, I hear well-meaning people say that God's love for us is unconditional, and it is. And then they draw the conclusion that means that God has no expectations for us. And I'm thinking, maybe you've never been a parent. Because I love that child unconditionally. There's nothing that that child could do that would stop me from loving that child. But I have expectations for that child. And there's not a contradiction. Some would say that love and law are contradictory. No, they're not. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another even as I have loved you. It is one of the laws of both Moses and the law of Christ to love. In the Old Testament, it was the law to love the Lord your God above everything else. Love and law are not contradictory. We just don't want it to be all law. And nor do you want it to be all love that is just lenient where nothing is expected of the child. Sometimes I think we ought to just think about what we're saying, maybe restate it to where it makes it's clear. To say that you have no expectations for a child. Can you hear that as a child? If your father, if your mother said to you, I just want you to know I love you and nothing will ever change that love. But by the way, I, have in, I expect nothing of you. I have no expectations for you. Thank you for nothing. I want you to expect something of me. I can remember telling our three little boys when they were little, on Saturday mornings I would usually set aside a few hours of the day to work them because I knew they needed to learn how to work. And I would give them a job that was, and I would tell them, I says, boys, I'm going to give you a man's size job. And this job is too big for one of you. But if the three of you do it together, you can get it done. And man, it would inspire them. And they go, we can do a man-sized job? Yep. If you do it together, you can get this done. And it, a lot of it was painting or staining because our house is a high-maintenance house and there's always something to paint or stain. And our kids can paint and stain, I'm telling you. And I remember I would get them on, I'd have them on that back deck and they'd all have three-inch paintbrushes and a, and a bucket of stain and they're, all, and they're all three on their knees out there, you know, staining the back deck. And they would do a good job. And I'd go, boys, you did a man's job today. And they just, they're proud that they made dad proud. That's a good thing. And they grew up and moved away, and they'd see me, they'd come home, and all the decks are stained. They'd go, dad, how'd you do that? You did that all by yourself? 
And I said, yeah, I just used a roller and got it. <laughs> they never knew you could do it with a roller in a fraction of the time. But anyway, we can exasperate them when we give them inadequate protection, inadequate guidance, when they just feel grossly unprepared for life. And honestly, sometimes the only thing we can do again, is point them to Jesus. Because we can't totally ourselves prepare our children. But we can point them to God, who is their sufficiency. To learn to trust God. That's why sometimes we send them off to camp and do things where they don't, we don't feel like they're... We, we can't be there. We can't hover. Right. They're going to be scared. They... they, they Right. But we're pointing them to Jesus. And there's, again, there's a balance. But you want to orient your kids to Christ. And so you can exasperate your child by always treating them as children. They need to grow up. You're raising men and women. You're not just raising boys and girls. You're raising them to be men and women. And so there's this transition that's constantly taking place as they move through the stages of life, and we need to be okay with that. This is harder sometimes for moms than it is for dads. I've told you all we live on a 200-acre property at his hill, and, and I um, knew as the boys were getting a little older, 10, 11, 12 years old, they needed more freedom. And, and as Patsy was homeschooling them, and they were getting the itch to kind of just break free of mom a little bit. And she was taking that personally. Well, they, you know, and, and I say, sweetheart, this isn't personal. You're raising boys to be men. They let them go, and you will never lose them. But if you keep, keep your claws on them, then you're going to lose them. And so we had as the goal to be done with homeschooling by lunchtime. So they could go out in the woods and be cowboys and Indians and everything else that's politically incorrect today. And just have fun. And they had slingshots and they had pellet guns and they shot almost everything that moved. Again, politically incorrect. incorrect. But they were learning to be independent was the point. And they always had a dog with them. So I told Patsy, the dog will keep away the snakes. I wasn't sure if that would happen or not, but you know... <laughs> They needed to learn independence. And they did. They were learning responsibility, learning independence. They were being prepared to be pushed out of the nest. We can exasperate our children when we make them make the impossible choice of choosing between us and God. And that's a big one. If you're orienting your children to Jesus, it's not just so that they would perform the way you want them to perform. It's so that they would respond to Christ before they respond to you. And folks, sometimes they're not the same. Sometimes what you want of them and what Jesus wants of them are not the same thing. We need to be humble enough to acknowledge that, especially as they get older. And so when it comes time to make that biggest life decision they'll ever make other than receiving Christ, 
and that's choosing who they will marry. How do you know when they're ready to get married? They've been making choices long before that of obeying God, surrendering their will to Him, of choosing Him and putting Him first. They're not ready to get married. They're not ready to make the biggest life choice there is if they haven't been consistently choosing Christ. And so when they do make that choice, and you've been raising them, choose Jesus, put Christ first, and they fall in love, and they're seeking the Lord, and folks, all you can do is continue to guide them. Give some input. Give the guidance. But it isn't your choice of who your children marry. It's their choice before God. So I don't think that I had the authority to tell my kids who they could and could not marry. That's God's business. My business is to encourage my children, train my children to seek the Lord. We had a discussion recently as elders about this matter. And I appreciated what one of the men said. He says, you know, it's amazing that we can so um, clearly and firmly, I'm paraphrasing here, prophesy concerning what somebody, what the will of God is for someone else and have such difficulty understanding God's will for ourselves. Can I think of all the times when I've said, at least in my heart, if not verbally, what I thought was a good match and what wasn't a good match. That's God's business. It's not mine. I can't see the whole picture. Only God can. And I've seen people that get married that I thought would never have a crossword between them. And five years later, they're filing for divorce. And I've seen other couples. I remember one in particular I wouldn't have hired the guy to, to push shopping carts across the Walmart parking lot. And they've been married for over 20 years now. And they've done very well. What do I know? All I know from God's word is, as a dad, I'm not to exasperate my children. And if I've raised my children to seek after the Lord, I need to let them make the decisions that God is asking them to make independence upon God and not make those decisions for them because that is exasperating. Husbands, don't be embittered against your wives. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Do you see any connection there? Again, if we could just look at ourselves in a mirror, the things that tend to embitter me toward my wife are very likely the very things that I'm doing to exasperate my children. One thing that is common here, and this is where being a, the husband, the father, is not all that fun, is the father is responsible. The husband is responsible for his own heart if he's embittered toward his wife. And the father is responsible 
if his children are exasperated. So the husband can't blame his wife if he's embittered. And the husband can't blame his children if they're exasperated. We have to take responsibility. If I've got exasperated children, I'm doing something wrong. And if I'm embittered against my wife, I'm doing something wrong, not her. This is my responsibility before the Lord. And Jesus, again, is the one who's sufficient for these things. One person said, we pass on saving faith and a transformed life to our children within the nurturing confines of a loving home. There are expectations. There are things that will not be compromised on. But it is a home full of love and grace and mercy and understanding and even fun. Obedience is ultimately for the transferring of allegiance to Christ. It is for the demonstration of love. It is for the development of character. And it is above all for the demonstration of Christ in his life. These are taking longer than I thought they would. Sorry. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external services, those who merely please men, but as with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong he has done, and that without partiality. There are so many good examples in Scripture of people who have served well. I think in particular of Joseph and Daniel. Great, great studies of what it looks like to be a slave and to serve well. And again, Ephesians speaks to slaves as well. First Peter speaks to slaves and their responsibility. So just to read some of the things here in summarizing those passages. They are to obey in all things, not just picking and choosing what they want to obey. Many times the employee or the, um, or the slave is not going to fully understand everything. They don't have to fully understand. They have to do what's being asked of them. They are to be submissive and to be submissive with all respect to all masters, to those who are good and gentle and to those who are unreasonable and unjust. They are to be, have sincerity of heart and not serve merely with external service or eye service or as men pleasers. Again, all of us are in this, most of us at least, have are in a position where we are under authority in one way or another. And these things should characterize us. And think about how each of them characterizes the Lord Jesus. It's just part of putting on Christ. They are to serve in the fear of God. Not just serving in the fear of their master, but in the fear of God. With all their heart, heartily. In other words, not half-heartedly. As for the Lord, not merely for men. 
and with the certainty that God will give recompense, both for right and for wrong. There's probably fewer areas in life other than the family life and how it's functioning of how the Christian life is, is manifest and put on display than how we respond to those that we are under their authority, employees to employers. It is a basic fundamental way to demonstrate our faith, our trust in Christ. To employers, Paul says less here, but it's no less significant. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. I went through and just summarized all the different things that are said in the New Testament um, in this relationship between employer and employee or master and slave. And to the master or to the employer, in our context, the negatives, things that should not be true of the employer. They should not be threatening, insecure. And again, some of these verses I've taken from the verses that speak about the rich and how the rich are to be in relation to their employees and from James in particular. Not threatening, not insincere, not hoarding, not uncaring, not self-centered, not hard-hearted, not exploitive, not unjust, not without the fear of God, not indifferent, not complacent, not misusing and abusing of their power, not conceited, not with their hope fixed on riches and not wise in their own eyes. We've all had bosses where every one of those things would characterize them. I know that. I've had bosses like that. Should never be true of a Christian employer. The things that should be true of the Christian employer, just, he is fair, sincere, goodwill, toward those that are under him. He is good in character. He is gentle. He recognizes that he is under God and he glories in his humiliation. He does good. He is rich in good works. He is generous. He is ready to share. He is storing up treasures in heaven and he is taking hold of that which is life indeed. And the perspective for the employer to maintain, you have a master too in heaven. There is no partiality with God who is the master of all men. All, including employment of others, is to be done as to Christ. Wealth and position are temporary and fleeting. You will be forgotten. It is God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, not ourselves. God makes rich and God makes poor. We should live with eternity in mind, not just the present. Wealth is a tool to that end. We should understand that a poor man, our employee, in other words, can have greater insight and wisdom than we, the employer. Wealth is a hindrance oftentimes to spiritual life. Humility is essential. Wealth and power tend to mitigate against humility and breed pride. So in other words, we have no reason to think that we've accomplished something because we're in charge. Many times, positions of responsibilities are not because we've accomplished something. They're not achievements, they're assignments. And the wise, humble employer recognizes that the responsibility and the authority that he has are given as a gift from God, an assignment from God, and not because he's achieved something and he's being rewarded. It's not easy being an employee, 
it's not easy being an employer. I'm not convinced that one is harder than the other. It takes Jesus. There is no aspect of life, there is no relationship that we are in that Christ is not sufficient for it. Bad employer, Jesus is sufficient. Bad employees, Jesus is sufficient. In every aspect of life, there's nothing just academic here about what Paul is saying. Christ is preeminent, and Christ is sufficient. I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you again um, that we can come to you. And I have, Lord, just certainly in my heart this last week, um, have been face-to-face with, with my own um, sin and inadequacy and my need for you. And I, I thank you, God, that you are never embittered toward us, that you are never faithless, that your heart for us is never turned away, and that we can always come to you. And we can know you, God, for your sufficiency in every circumstance of life, in every relationship. And God, I thank you that that as life is made up of relationships and no person is an island, but we all, Lord, are live in community in one way or another. That this is what you've given and we can come to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the perfect community, to have your life fleshed out in each of us individually and especially corporately, as families, as a church, and even as a society. And I do pray, God, that we would be those who, who walk humbly with you and come to Jesus that he would be manifest in us in all the very significant relationships of life that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.